0: Sean's disappearance is now six days old, and the net has tightened around taxi driver Christopher Halliwell, whose car was picked up on CCTV stopping next to Sean right before she vanished. On the day police confront him, Halliwell finally says to Detective Steve Fulcher, Have you got a car? We'll go. It's not entirely clear as an offer. Of course, Steve hoped they were going to be taken to Sharno Callahan, but he couldn't be sure. And he didn't want to ask too many questions either, for fear that the delicate rapport he had created would break. So, in view of an entire convoy of police cars carrying a full surveillance team, they got in the car and set off, following Halliwell's directions.
1: I had no idea whether, have you got a car we'll go, was the buy sign that would indicate that he was going to do the right thing and take us to Shan. Um, but I had to go with it. I simply said to the driver, follow Christopher's directions and beckoned to the surveillance team to follow us. And then I was in his hands from that point on. Every turn, every direction that he took was directly from him. I had no idea where we were going.
0: While much has been said about what happened next, Steve is adamant. Unless you've been in that exact situation with the life of a girl potentially at stake, you can never know what you'd
1: do. So even at that point, I was unclear as to whether he was committed to the notion of taking me to Sean or not because it wasn't stated in these explicit terms. Because this conversation hangs on a knife edge. For all the criticism of these characters who have looked at this, They've clearly never been in a position of trying to get a, a cough out of a serial killer. It's not that easy and it's, there's, no, uh, there's no manual on it. I'm holding him in what I believe to be a promise to do the right thing, and take me to Sharno Callahan. Any wrong word or misplaced intonation could have taken him out at that moment and he'd say, you know what? I'm not doing this, you take me to the police station. That would be the end of Sharno Callahan's life and the end of any notion of recovering her.
0: Of course, taking a suspected kidnapper in a car with the Debbie Peach was not without its risk. Though, at the time, Steve's focus was elsewhere. We got into the car. Eddie Strange
1: was the driver. Debbie Peach sat in the front passenger seat, immediately in front of Christopher, and I sat behind the driver. It was only subsequently, maybe years later, that Debbie said, you know, she spent the entire journey fearing that he was going to lean forward with his handcuffed arms
0: and rip her throat out. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but it's a fair point. Debbie's safety notwithstanding, with Halliwell in the car, it was anyone's guess what would happen next. He never
1: obviously rolled over. What he said was, have you got a car? We'll go. So even at that point, I didn't know. I thought it was an acceptance on his part that he was going to take me to Sean but it wasn't explicit. And it was never explicit actually throughout the entire journey. So we were entirely in his hands as to whether or not he had a change of heart, asked us to turn the car around, go back to the police station, or whatever he wanted to do.
0: As they set off, it became clear that in narrowing down the six and a half kilometer area surrounding the phone tower where Sean's phone had pinged, the police had been looking in the wrong place. Either that, or Halliwell had moved Shan at some point.
1: All I could do was beckon to the surveillance crew to follow us. We drove out of Barbary Castle, and the first thing he said to me was, what do you bring me up here for? Which is the entire hunch about Barbary Castle was obviously completely flawed. He then directed us in the direction of Gable Cross Police Station, and I said to him, look, if, if we go in that way, you've got the world's media to on the doorstep, um, and they're going to see you all. So we get towards the police station and I've made that point and so he directed us around so we avoided the press pack that were there and it was at that point I realised this is actually going to work. He is going to take us to Sharnagallan.
0: The drive from Barbary Castle to where they would eventually end up is not short. We're talking 40 minutes, about 16 miles on winding roads. As they drove, Steve was desperate to keep Halliwell in the moment. It felt like he'd formed a bond with his suspect, however fleeting and fragile, and that any false move could break the spell, and Halliwell would suddenly realise he was about to incriminate himself irrevocably. Halliwell complained of his feet being cold, so they turned up the car heater and Steve rolled him a cigarette. In what must have been a very surreal journey for everyone, they made small talk about their smoking routines. Anything, Steve felt, to keep Halliwell from changing his mind. They came onto the B4000 Shrivenham-Lambourne Road, then left towards Wantage on the B4507. Steve would only realise later, that they were very close to where Halliwell had been when the surveillance team lost him on the Tuesday night. Little did they know then how dearly it might have cost them.
1: We reached the environs of Uffington and we were crawling down a B road. I had no idea of this location, it's in Gloucestershire. And he was looking for landmarks or points that he could recognise, having told me that he'd repositioned Shan during the hours of darkness. He told me that he'd repositioned her on the Tuesday night. And foolishly, I'd said to him, no, it can't have been the Tuesday because we had you under surveillance. And he said to me, "Um, Steve, I might be mad, but I'm not fucking stupid. Obviously, had recognized that he was under surveillance at that point in time, but triggered by my suggestion the view came out that it might have been the Monday that she was repositioned. So we're still unclear on that, but his first reaction was the Tuesday evening. And of course, we had a surveillance loss on the Tuesday evening. One of the extraordinary things about this case was we obviously knew Sean at some point was somewhere in the Sabernac Forest, this six and a half kilometre radius area of forest. And the response from the public was something I've never seen before. Over 10,000 people took the days off work, came in coaches to help with the line search of the forest. We obviously were somewhere close to actually coming across shan just as a consequence of random, what was essentially a random line search, albeit pinpointed by telephony to an extent. So I think that must have been significant in prompting him to move. He said, you were getting close.
0: Once Halliwell began cooperating with police, he seemed to pull out all stops to make sure they located Sean and he seemed a willing participant in the process revealing a number of details about what had happened to Sean including that he had indeed killed her this is another of those moments where people would later argue that once Steve knew that Sean was dead the rules should have changed but there was no way that steve was going to stop before he confirmed this for himself
1: he said on the route to uffington the deposition site that he'd killed her by stabbing her in the back of the head with a knife and i was challenged on this point to the extent that the barrister representing halliwell would say well look at that point you knew she was dead therefore you could no longer justify continuing the interview under the provisions of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. She should have stopped the car before finding the body and taken him back to the police station because any justification is about the threat to Sean's life. And my argument then and now is, well, he thinks he killed her, but there's many a time when somebody's actions have uh, indicated that somebody would necessarily die from that, but early medical intervention can save their life, i.e. until I see her and a, a trained doctor or paramedic does everything they can and is unable to preserve life. That's the point at which I'll accept that um, contention. So the truth of the matter was he indicated to me during the course of the drive from Barbary Castle to Uffington, during this very tense interview, conversation with him, that he'd used a knife in the nape of her neck and that he'd thrown the knife out somewhere on that, on that route. But my view then as now is that my responsibility and the right thing to do under the law was to take his directions to find Sean directly because you never know until you find the body whether there's, there's life.
0: It's hard to imagine any cop making a different choice at that moment in time. And the rest,
1: of course, is history. That he takes us to a remote location, actually, very filmic location at the White Horse at Uffington, which is in Gloucestershire, and it's um, it's the, the Iron Age White Horse, the famous one. But the location where he deposited her, and he was desperately trying to show me. I mean, he was fully contrite. He was desperately. We drove up and down this road because he said, "No, it's a bit further than this. Maybe not." This is not somebody who's being oppressed or being forced to give information. This is somebody who's finally decided that he can't go on murdering women in the way that he had been.
0: They continued driving until at last they came to the dark, lonely road.
1: He'd identified a stretch of road, which was about a mile in length, and we drove slowly up there and he was desperately trying to find some kind of Winthrop Point or some, some identifier that indicate where he'd actually tipped her over the bank and at the end of a mile he said no it's definitely not any further than that so i dropped a surveillance car off at that point we went back through slowly again but he couldn't be more specific than that mile point bearing in mind there's no lighting on that stretch of road and he deposited it during the hours of darkness you know in the dead of night
0: all through the drive debbie peach sat in the front seat of the car playing the part of scribe trying to record as accurately as she could the conversation happening in the back seat. The notes that
1: Deb was desperately trying to record are quite odd because (laughs) it's very difficult to maintain uh, verbatim records there, but they show what Halliwell was doing. He was desperately in the moment trying to do the right thing and show me where Sean was. We were in this single-track remote road, very undulating, with a deep 12-foot bank to our left side, and he was desperately trying to find landmarks that he could recall as a trigger. We went too far, and he said, no, it's definitely no further than this. And Turned around and went back again, and we traversed it twice. But he was clear that within that mile parameter was where he would deposited Charm. So I dropped a surveillance car off at one extremity, surveillance car at the other, with a view to calling search teams in to, to find Charm. Well, I was quite happy that he had Directed us as best he could, as accurately as he could. But it was this mile stretch of road. Somewhere along there, he had deposited her. I was quite convinced
0: that he was fully contrite and was telling me the truth. The most striking thing of all about the location Steve found himself in was how far away it was from where they had been searching. They were miles away from where thousands of members of the public had spent days combing the forest. Without Halliwell taking them to Shan himself, in all probability, they would never have found her. Going down all those small country roads, Steve could see that clearly.
1: But where he deposited her, it wasn't on a dog walking track, it wasn't on bridleways or anything. She would Shan would never have been found. Never have been found.
0: It was the culmination of an unimaginably intense few hours i must admit
1: at that time i felt a sense of the tension of holding somebody in a moment of promise like that for such a long period of time half an hour 40 minutes or however long it was is is intense and there's a sense of relief that it's over i've done my duty this is my job whether you can prove evidentially is actually of secondary importance we've we've got to this point actually he's going to have considerable difficulty explaining this one away but one way or another i've returned i've found shan or will do i never actually saw her in situ you understand because i remained with christopher halliwell
0: as fulcher stood with the murder suspect his next thought was to get him back to the police station
1: i never actually physically went there because so he said i've got a mile along a stretch of road, she's somewhere down this bank, so of course you call in the medics and the search teams and the dogs and so on to try and recover her. Obviously those teams moved in. He assured me, you will find her Steve, you'll you'll find her. And I was very grateful because these kind of cases are very rarely resolved, I mean they're incredibly difficult to do as as, as you can imagine, but we've actually resolved one and in short order. So I'm very grateful for him. I'm already thinking, right, let's get get you back to the police station. see what happens from here.
0: In many people's eyes, this should have been the end of the story. The suspect has led police to where Shan might be located. But because the suggestion is that Sean is no longer alive, the rules of the interview change. Remember, Steve has been operating so far under section 11.1 of PACE, the police and Criminal Evidence Act code, which permits officers to conduct an urgent interview if there is an imminent threat to a person's physical safety. This is what provided the justification for questioning Halliwell without a solicitor and outside of the police station. The PACE rules state, Interviewing in any of these circumstances shall cease once the relevant risk has been averted or the necessary questions have been put in order to attempt to avert that risk. In this case, it's obviously arguable, and indeed later it was argued, that since Steve had now been told by Halliwell that he had murdered Sean, and given the location of her body, there was no further risk to life to justify the urgent interview. BBC journalist Steve Brodie explains what should have happened next,
2: At that stage, there's absolutely no doubt under Pace, the body has been found. Christopher Halliwell should have been charged on suspicion of murder, cautioned in other words, taken back to a police station and given access
0: to a solicitor at that stage. There's no doubt about that. And Steve Fulcher would have taken Halliwell back to Gablecross at this point had he not said something completely unexpected. He said, you and I should have a chat. And I
1: interpreted that as meaning that he would want some quid pro quo in terms of me catering for his family who were going to be affected by his incarceration, which was sure to follow from the notion of his having murdered Charno Callahan. So I agreed to speak to him on that, on that basis, but because we were blocking the road, I asked Eddie Strange, the driver, to get us off the road. And he ended up driving up the countryside track that takes you directly onto the tail of the white horse at Uffington. So having got there, we got out of the car. We walked about 50 yards away, I suppose, myself with Debbie in attendance and, and Christopher. And I just said, well, you know, what do you want to tell me? And it was then that he said, actually, he asked for help. He said, uh, uh, what's the matter with me, Steve? I'm a sick fucker. Can I get help? And I'd, I, you know, I couldn't think of anything constructive to say at that particular strange moment. And said, oh, he's gone beyond that, Chris. And then he said, um, do you want another one? And I asked for detail, you know, what do you mean? Um, and he said uh,
0: that he'd killed, an, or he indicated he'd killed another girl. This is another major crossroads moment for Steve. At this point, he's being told about a second murder victim who has clearly been dead for some time. Journalist Steve Brody explains the dilemma.
2: At this point, there's absolutely no doubt under the PACE laws. There's no doubt about it because you could argue, and most people will support Steve Fulcher in the first instance when he was still looking for a possible kidnap victim. But in this instance, the second instance, it's very important to know that clearly the body down the road, wherever it is, has been dead for some time. Therefore, the defense that it's a kidnapped doesn't hold water on that particular issue. So therefore, cautioned, taken back to the police station, given access to a lawyer.
0: Instead, Steve took a deep breath and carried on this once in a lifetime conversation. At this point, I'm going to go back to Debbie Peach's transcript. This is what actually passed between Steve and Halliwell next, as set down in Steve's book. Steve. Are you sure you want to tell me this? Halliwell. You're the man in charge. Steve. When was it? Halliwell. 2003, 4 or 5. I don't know if you want to go for another. Steve. Where? Halliwell. East Leach, the other side of Lechlade on Thames. Steve. Was it a similar sort of circumstances? Halliwell. Pretty much. Out in the open he told Steve he had taken a sex worker from the Manchester Road area of Swindon. Steve Would you be able to take us back there, to the vicinity? Halliwell The exact spot. I know you're not a psychiatrist, but what the fuck's wrong with me? Normal people don't go around killing each other. Steve Are there any more incidents, Chris? Halliwell. No. Steve. Only these two. Halliwell. Isn't that enough? Steve. Was it a similar sort of thing before? Halliwell. Yes, she was a prostitute. On the game. Steve. You know Sean wasn't. Halliwell. I do now. What caught me? Was it the gamekeeper at Ramsbury? Steve. We've been surveilling you. Halliwell. At Heathrow last night. Steve. Yes. Halliwell. I thought so. I might be sick, but I'm not fucking stupid. Steve. You can't explain this? Halliwell. I can't explain it to myself. I don't think I'll be getting community service. Steve. No you won't. Are there any others? Halliwell. No. I was keeping a
1: conversation going and as I described I clearly wasn't going to talk about the football or trivia but you've also got to balance very carefully and delicately, the subjects that you're going to raise and maintain that rapport with. So he talked about Sean. he talked about, I needed to know what the search teams were going to find. Was it particularly disturbing? I think I'd asked. And he was very insistent on making the point that he hadn't had sex with Sean. He described this girl that he'd taken from Manchester Road as a prostitute and I said to him, you do know that Sean wasn't. He replied, I do now, indicating that
0: he had a specific uh, choice of victim in mind. It would take Steve a long time to process the significance of the conversation, but in the moment, here on a lonely country road, was a man confessing to a second murder. Who could turn away from that? It was an extraordinary meeting. I think he saw me as
1: as a life raft and was throwing out, asking for my help. He said, Steve, what's the matter with me? I'm a sick fucker. Is it too late to get help? And I had to tell him, Chris, it's gone beyond that. There's no place for false promises. And he said it on another occasion, I know you're not a psychiatrist, but what's wrong with me? And it's only in hindsight, piecing back this conversation from Debbie Peach's notes and and the recollection and reflection on this most extraordinary conversation I'll probably ever have, that I realized that this was just the tip of the iceberg and that what he was trying to do was find something concrete to pin his hopes on. I felt that the right thing to do, the only obvious thing to do was to try to find out from Christopher precisely what he was talking about. So I asked him some questions like, Who was she? He said he didn't know who this girl was. So I asked him, when was it? And he couldn't be specific. It was only subsequently that I realized how strange this response was. That he'd taken a girl from Manchester Road in Swindon in 2003, four or five. And when I asked him, can you take me to her? He said, yes, to the exact spot. So he could take me to the exact spot, but couldn't recall which year he'd killed a girl in. The significance of that came later when I had time to reflect on everything that happened in the preceding three hours. But the subject of the conversation was less about getting uh, explicit detail in a specific order as you would with a formal interview than keeping him in that frame of mind in which he was contrite and willing to maintain that relationship with me. On the basis of that we got into the car again, the the whole convoy was um, waiting for us and the helicopter was still above our head. I just was able briefly to indicate to the team leader to follow us. I think I said because he's going to take us to another one.
0: As far as Steve's critics are concerned, at this point Steve does the wrong thing. It might sound incredible to the average listener, But the correct thing, by the book, for a detective in his position to do would be to caution Halliwell, forget about the second body, and head back to the station. And yet, as I explained earlier, section 11.1 of Pace also permits an urgent interview if delay would lead to interference with, or harm to, evidence of an offence. And of course, a dead body, is a pretty important piece of evidence in any murder case. Later on, courts would spend days considering this question. At the time, Steve only had seconds to make up his mind.
1: I'm obviously, as a professional police officer, calculating the consequences of accepting a confession under these circumstances, what would happen next. What would happen if I didn't do it? What would happen if I did do it? And I said to him, are you sure, Chris, are you sure you want to tell me this? And I think he responded along the lines of, well, you're the man in charge. We'd formed that relationship. It wasn't a, an entirely empathetic relationship. It certainly wasn't me condoning or, or giving him to understand that uh, any of this activity was something that I sympathise with, but very much was one of uh, an officer dealing professionally with an individual who'd been caught up in the most serious of crimes. I mean, it came after four days of intense activity, desperately trying to find Sean. every effort, every thought focused on that. And then this, in this strange, serene moment that took this whole case into a different realm. And I was desperately trying to calculate what the best thing to do was at that particular moment in time. On the one hand, he's offering information that I can't possibly have from any other source. Uh, If I don't follow it up, I've got no chance of ever knowing what another one meant. Set against whatever was going on outside my immediate knowledge, what was going on back at the police station, what was going on in the uh, line search for Shan. It was quite surreal. I mean, it's a surreal location. The sky was a strange hue. And it wasn't something I was looking for. I'd gone out looking for Sean. There was a certain mixture of uh, disappointment and grief that in all probability we were going to find her dead, but we were going to find her. And so mixed with a certain exhilaration on that front. And then this, this notion that he's offering freely and without any prompting from me, offering to take me to another victim, which takes it into a totally different realm. The um, decision for me was straightforward. Either I find out who this girl is by allowing Halliwell at his inception to take me to her, or we'd never know who she is. So on that basis, I agreed to go, and he said he could, he could take me to the exact spot
0: For the second time in as many hours, Steve was letting his entire convoy, plus a helicopter, be directed by a murderer. Halliwell was calling the shots. It was incredibly
1: intense, exactly the same uh, knife-edge conversation that I'd had in the drive from Barbary Castle to Uffington. We then undertook for another hour and a half from... This location to East Leach. I had no idea where he's going. If if I took him out of that moment, gave him to make a different choice about whether or not he should confess to this murder, he could have stopped the car, and we'd never known Becky would never have been found. So I felt on that knife edge again of carefully chosen questions, carefully chosen words. And during that uh, during that drive, he was clearly contrite, he was crying. He showed me a list of girls on his phone that trusted him to pick them up late at night. And he was asking me for help. He said, Steve, what the fuck's wrong with me? What can you do to help me? And you know, I couldn't think of anything at that moment in time to offer in terms of help. It's only subsequently on thinking about what you could say to somebody in that position that could have helped. All I could do at the time was hold him in that moment of contrition.
0: For the second time that day, Steve had also deliberately decided to deviate from standard operating procedures because he felt it was the right thing to do. It's a question absolutely anybody who knows about this case has an opinion on. Journalist Steve Brody explains the grey area of what happened on that day when the sky turned a strange hue and a murderer confessed to a second victim. I think
2: everybody, including myself, observers of this extraordinary event, think that Steve Fortscher was right to go with Christopher Halliwell to find the body of Charlotte Hallahan. I don't think anybody can argue with that. What's the point of appointing a policeman with tremendous ability if you don't use that ability? Why shouldn't he go? He was bringing closure to that family. The second occasion is much more of a gray area, much more of a gray area. He doesn't have the excuse that it was a kidnap because clearly she had been killed many years before. So that excuse, if you will, falls. But even then, even then, why shouldn't he go and find the body of a man who turns out to be a serial killer? Surely he should be allowed that sort of grace the PACE laws were brought in, quite rightly, to prevent the verbaling up of victims or suspects, people who were entirely innocent, by in the main, not exclusively, of the activities of the Metropolitan Police in the 1960s.
0: But whether it was right or wrong, Steve Fulcher made a choice in the moment, a choice that at its heart lay truth and justice But the law would see it differently. It was a rapid, intense calculation
1: with very little information to go on. What reaction am I going to get? How will this be perceived subsequently in court processes? The easy thing to do, of course, would have been to shut him up, return him to the police station and have no knowledge from that point on of what another one meant. Of course, you don't know what an investigation will recover what I do know is if I didn't take that opportunity it was less likely that we would ever get to the point of uncovering the extent of Halliwell's offending. So what I was thinking was another one is in all probability another victim of murder. And recovery of that evidence, the body of this other victim, would be justified under the urgent interview provisions of section 11 of PACE. So it was on that basis that I decided that was the right course of action. And I did consider whether to caution him. Should I actively prevent him giving this
0: information? Another component of the criticism Steve later faced was also a double-edged sword. If he had have taken Halliwell back to the police station at this point, a solicitor would have been appointed, whose duty it was to tell Halliwell not to self-incriminate. In other words, to stop talking. But my calculation
1: there was, well, a caution in and of itself does not make this confession, the acceptance of this confession, pace compliant. To do that, you've got to actively reject it, place him under arrest on suspicion of murder on the basis of him saying, do you want another one? Take him back to the police station, get him booked into custody if they accept him on that basis. Give him a solicitor. The solicitor's role... Acting on behalf of a client in custody is to prevent them incriminating themselves. That isn't a choice, that is their duty. So there is no mechanism under English and Welsh law for this confession to have occurred outside the section 111 urgent interview provisions that I adopted.
0: At that moment, for Steve Fulchar, there was something infinitely more important than the letter of the law. There is no mechanism, which is why it's never happened in
1: 30 years of policing since the inception of Pace. I argue, and I'm perfectly confident in my decision-making on this, that it was the right and only thing to do. Because even if this case is thrown out of court, I've taken the body of a victim and returned them, returned that body to the bereaved parents. And that is better than not having the body in the first place, quite obviously and logically. So that was the calculation I had to make in fast time, in intense circumstances, in which any sign of weakness or wavering communicated to Halliwell could have changed his inclination to make that confession in the first place. And I think I got it right. I think it's justified under the law as it stands, and it is what any mother, any parent, anybody with loved ones that have gone missing would want a police officer to do in those circumstances.
0: Whether he was right or not was the question that would ultimately determine Steve's career and is at the heart of this maddening story. On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma...
2: I remember Steve telling us that special interview had been required. It was seen as a textbook investigation without a shadow of a doubt. When he got taken to Swindon, he got a lawyer.
1: He never said, no, there aren't any more. What he said was, isn't that enough? Which is quite a big difference.